Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Sunday, June 26, 2022. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. The Supreme Court has upheld Mississippi's abortion ban after 15 weeks of pregnancy and overturned Roe v. Wade, the landmark decision that once established a right to an abortion. It eventually come down on the fact that they believe Roe was wrongly decided. Even Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg had worries that Roe was not fundamentally legally sound. I'm Kevin Cork. Here's a question. Are you a renter? Well, if so, it's likely the following will not surprise you. Rent is up and going way up in many parts of the country. So much so that, in fact, many Americans agree with famed New York politician Jimmy McMillan, who famously opined, the rent is too damn high. I think that a lot of people have seen their ability to become a homeowner slip away from them. Like The goalpost keeps moving further out as home prices go up, as mortgage rates go up, and then rents go up so you can't save as much. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. After the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, the reaction was swift and fierce. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said women today have less freedom than their mothers did. Protests erupted outside the Supreme Court building on both sides of the issue. President Biden spoke within hours of the decision coming down, saying the justices took a constitutional right away. I believe Roe v. Wade was the correct decision as a matter of constitutional law and application of the fundamental right to privacy and liberty in matters of family and personal autonomy. President Biden referenced upcoming midterm elections and said the issue is on the ballot. Voters need to make their voices heard. This fall, we must elect more senators and representatives who will codify women's right to choose in the federal law once again. He said he will do all in his power to protect a woman's right in states where they will face the consequences of the court's decision. While many states will opt to ban abortion or already have, the president said the decision does not stop a woman who wants an abortion from traveling to a state that provides them and that states cannot stop a woman from traveling. He also questioned states' abilities to block a woman from receiving medication that can induce an abortion early on in pregnancy. Many Republicans were pleased with the ruling, praising the court. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy said, The right to life has been vindicated. The voiceless will finally have a voice. This great nation can now live up to its core principle that all are created equal, not born equal, created equal. 26 states are going to or are likely going to restrict abortion. 13 of those states have trigger laws, restrictions or bans that take effect after Roe is overturned. In their decision, the justices decided there is no constitutional right to an abortion, specifically referencing the 14th Amendment. The court is looking at whether or not this kind of stands that uh, test. Shannon Bream is the host of Fox News at Night and covers the Supreme Court for Fox News. And they talk about other rights and other cases and things that have been decided within the context and the contours of the 14th Amendment. 
it eventually come down on the fact that they believe Roe was wrongly decided. Um, even Justice uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg had worries, and, and people who support the pro-choice position have had worries, that Roe was not fundamentally legally sound, that the reasoning left openings like the one we're seeing today for this court to say it's no good, it's being overturned. So the court ultimately says it's going to go back to the states, to the people who are closest uh, to those who elect them, and each state will have its own laboratory of democracy, essentially, with this. And as you know, many states have already passed trigger laws that, that kick in today or very quickly in the future following this decision, and they go in both directions when it comes to access. And th- this also has to do with privacy, right? When we talk about the 14th Amendment and liberty, that there is essentially, the court found, no right to privacy insofar as abortion is concerned. Well, yeah, the... This decision had come under that umbrella, that there was um, this right to privacy, that abortion fell under that umbrella. Obviously, the, the words abortion, the right to abortion is not outlined in the Constitution or Bill of Rights. Right. So there's always been this argument about where it would be found. And, you know, these conversations happen about other rights and about other um, issues as well. But but essentially, they're saying, yeah, there, there really was not a constitutional right for this to be decided at the national level, um, for there to be any one decision. This is something left to the states. And so, um, you know, the Chief Justice, or excuse me, Justice Alito, writing for the majority, um, says, now this is not to call into question other rights, things like contraception and same-sex marriage. We're stating unequivocally that this opinion has nothing to do with those rights. So recognizing that there are rights that weren't enumerated in the Constitution, but the majority finding today that they don't include abortion among them. And yet Justice Thomas wrote um, after the, or in concurrence with this, um, that they should reconsider things like contraception and gay marriage in light of their finding. Yeah, I mean, he uses the language. He refers to those decisions. Um, He is one of nine. Nobody else signed on with him. So he clearly wanted to make that point that he thinks that those those should also be revisited. If if you're going to use this particular line of reasoning with regard to abortion, Um, he got no takers on that, but he wanted to make sure he made his point on that as well. Yeah, and and no takers in in that writing, but does that mean those cases would come before the court? Or you need four justices to accept? Yeah, you would need four justices uh, to take up a case, to vote, to hear it, and with the majority very clearly saying, um, listen, what we're saying, we're saying we are not going to touch those. Nothing in this opinion should be used to touch any of those opinions. Mm. Um, I, I just don't see any makeup on this court now or in the future that would be willing to revisit those. Shannon, when President Biden said the court took us back literally 150 years, he was referencing that the court referenced that even when the 14th Amendment was enacted and after that, that most states had criminalized abortion. Is that accurate? Yeah, I mean, I, I can't remember what the number is, two thirds or three quarters, something along those lines that abortion, you know, in, into the uh, much uh, of the 20th century and into the 21st. I mean, in, in many places, it was illegal, and, and states had been pretty uniform in that over time. Clearly, that changed um, when we got into um, the Roe v. Wade era over the last several decades. Um, but yeah, previously, when you're looking at further back in our jurisprudence and, and where the country was um, and, and the timing of the of the fourth, 14th Amendment, um, things are much different than they are today. Did the justices get into viability at all? Like, I know many of the pro-life folks have said technology allows us to see you know, way more of a baby in the womb or of a fetus in the womb. We can get those scans, you know, at like 20 weeks pregnant. You can see more. Did the court ad- address that at any point? Like when that that, you that know, happens? 
I'll have to be honest with you. I haven't seen it in the top lines of the 100 pages or so that I've <laughs> been getting through. So I don't know if they go down that rabbit hole. I mean, obviously, that was a big part of the Casey decision, the progeny off of Roe, was more that conversation about viability. But the question in the case, in this case, was that 15-week ban in Mississippi. Right. And the question that the court agreed to consider was whether all pre-viability bans were unconstitutional. So you saw with the Chief Justice with his concurrence where he said, gosh, both sides have a freedom from doubt that I don't have on their position. Mm -hmm. Um, He said what we decided was this particular question. We decided to hear that. I decide that question, but I'm not going any further. And there was no reason we should have gone on to Roe. Yeah. Talk to me about Justice Roberts, because he upheld Mississippi's law here, right? No abortions after 15 weeks. But he said he would not have gone as far as his colleagues in overturning Roe. Can you parse any of that for us? Yeah. You know, he actually says this. He says um, both these positions, both the majority and the dissent, he says they have a relentless freedom from doubt on the legal issues I cannot share. So he's saying, listen, they both swung for the fences and I can't go either place. He says, we decided one question that we granted her for, for review, which was whether these abortion restrictions prior to viability um, are unconstitutional. He says, you know, Mississippi's fine. I, I think that, that what their law has done there, 15 weeks of pregnancy, um, you know, that that's the only question I'm willing to answer. There's no need to go any further in this case. So he was very clear. That's kind of, you know, the feeling that we were getting um, as yes, the protests are not getting quieter here. <laughs> Usually through the day, it's good. They're actually ramping up. More and more arrivals, um, as you would expect on something that's heated. Um, but yeah, the chief, he tries to find the middle ground there. You know, he's all about finding the most narrow kind of solution or resolution to a case possible. He doesn't want the court to make big sweeping decisions and, and worries that um, they've gone farther than they need to in this case. Yeah, it's interesting. It makes you wonder why the justices did then go down that path? If, if it was just the narrow question of Mississippi's law, what, how, how did it broaden out? It is interesting because we knew, um, you know, within the last few years, there were states that were passing laws they knew would immediately wind up in court. And they knew that they passed them. And, you know, some of the lawmakers openly said, we're trying to get another bite at Roe. We think it's weakly decided. And we think um, that if we can get this law in the books, we know it's immediately going to be challenged. And ultimately, it will get to the court. And this is our chance. And that certainly seemed to be the vibe from the Mississippi lawmakers who backed um, their case, which was the vehicle for having that conversation, for revisiting something that's nearly a half a century old. And so um, it must have been that these justices felt like if we're going to answer this question about Mississippi law, we're probably going to have to do this again. If the ban is now 15 weeks, uh, what about when it's you know 12? What about when it's a heartbeat law? Um, there were five of them who felt like it was time to go that next step. What did the dissenters say? Uh, Breyer, Kagan, Sotomayor, Mm -hmm. it was a very powerful and very blunt Mm -hmm. dissent. Yeah, and, you know, they did something interesting that we don't see all the time, but I remember this in the dissent to the Obamacare case, which then it was the conservatives dissenting. They all signed their name. It really signals um, kind of an extra level of commitment and passion that we're not assigning this to any one of us. We all want our names on this um, dissent, that we are standing together. And they, you know, talk about a couple of things. They... um, they talk about the situation of what will be launched by what the court has done today. Um, what they say in part is, from the very moment of fertilization, this court is saying a woman has a no right, uh, has no rights to speak of, and that a state can force her to bring a pregnancy to term. They say even at the steepest personal and familial cost, they say because of what the court's done here, states are going to feel, feel free to go as far as they want. But we know they already had. Many of them have gone in both directions with so-called trigger laws in anticipation of what they would get today. But the dissenters also go after 
they're worried that the majority has in some way harmed the court itself. Um, they quote Justice Breyer. They say, one of us once said, it is not often in the law that so few have so quickly changed so much. Then they say, um, for all of us in our time on this court, that has never been more true than today. In overruling Roe and Casey, this court betrays its guiding principles with sorrow for this court, but more for the many millions of Americans of women who have lost what they call a fundamental constitutional protection. They say we dissent. So they say they're not only you know worried about what happens um, to women seeking abortions, but they worry that this has hurt the court as well. And, and what a term it has been. Uh, from the leak, um, many different leaks this term, um, but that one about the draft opinion has certainly changed the game, it feels like, over here. And briefly, Shannon, just two more questions for you. One, what about that leak? It's being investigated. I understand that some of the, the clerks had to turn over some records. How, how far is this investigation going? Well, it's it's completely internal as far as we know. We've got no indication that it's gone beyond. There have been questions about whether the court would reach out to the DOJ or, you know, specifically the FBI to get involved. But instead, um, you know, they they have uh, decided that, they're, that this is the path that they're going to be on, and um, that's where we are for now. One more. We do have some big cases still coming. Religious liberty out of Washington, remain in Mexico. I'm interested, especially in the Remain in Mexico case, right? Because we've heard a lot about how immigration-related matters are under federal jurisdiction. Um, but given the state concerns here that undocumented migrants place a burden on schools and hospital systems in a state, do you recall where the court was during arguments on that? Or what do you make of sort of the tension between immigration being a, a federal issue versus states saying, hey, we have some concerns? Yeah, you know, I need to dig out my notes on that because I've been so focused on this one. Yeah. I do have a pile of notes on each of the cases. Um, you know, that's been a tricky one. And I think that if you take the Trump and Biden out of it, because it was obviously a Trump policy that was instituted, right. that the Biden administration has been trying to unwind. Um, I think you go back to a lot of the arguments that it happened during the Trump administration, too, about executive power and authority and how far uh, a president and executive order or agencies have that they can go on these issues. Um so I think that it's going to get a nonpartisan treatment. I think it, it will actually be through the lens of those questions about whether or not um, an executive order goes too far. And this, this court has smacked down a lot of executive orders and a lot of action um, from presidents from both parties. Um, they're not um, highly deferential to that. So I'll be interested to see. Shannon Bream, thank you so much for your time on this uh, busy weekend. <laughs> it's, a, it's a loud one out there. Hopefully you can hear me okay. Always great to be with you. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. As if skyrocketing gas and food prices weren't enough, now soaring rent is pummeling American pocketbooks. With prices at their highest mark in decades and unlikely to come down anytime soon. Cities like Austin, Texas have seen rent rise by as much as 40% in one year. Miami and New York City are much better off with 35% jumps. Nationally, rents are up 15% from last year, which is quite a steep jump. Uh, that's for homes that are currently on the market to be rented out. Experts like Redfin Chief Economist Daryl Fairweather says there are a few reasons for the billowing costs, 
and a few things that you can do to keep more money in your pocket. If you have a lease, you might not feel how much rents have gone up just yet, but when you get that lease renewal or when you look for your next apartment, you'll notice how much rents have gone up. You mentioned 15%. That seems a big, uh, like a pretty big jump, to be honest with you. I thought I'd read somewhere that the national average was more or less around 4% annually. What's happened recently? Well, it's the same inflation we're seeing all across the economy. People uh, have more money in their pockets because of lax interest rates, uh, and they have more money to spend. Also, part of it has to do with millennials forming households. During the pandemic, a lot of people were living with family or before that had roommates, and now millennials really want a place of their own. That's creating new demand for housing units, including rentals. But here's the issue I'm having, and I think people have probably said as much to you as an economist. It's one thing to see your rent go up by, I don't know, 100 bucks at the end of a lease, and you're thinking, well, it's 100 bucks, but what are you going to do? I'm not going to move for $100. But anecdotally, I'm hearing stories of people saying their rent has been increased by 250 300 $400 a month. Have you heard such stories? Yes, I've heard stories like that, especially in hot migration destinations like Austin, for example. Their rents are up uh, about 40% in terms of asking rents. So I'm sure a lot of people who live in Austin got hit with really high rent increases. Uh, One unique thing about Texas is that they uh, get most of their revenue from property taxes. So when landlords get that increased property tax bill because the value of their units have gone up, they're quick to pass that on to renters and there aren't any rent there is no rent control to constrict that in most of Texas. Yeah, you mentioned Austin, Texas, rents rising by as much as 40%, but other places too, uh, Miami, another hot destination uh, market, 35% increases in rent uh, year over year. New York City, Nassau County, Long Island, even Newark, New Jersey, uh, as people mm-hmm. sort of flee some major markets like Uh, You know, you can pick a number of cities, Chicago, for example, and they go to these other destinations. Uh, The folks who lived there originally, say Nashville, for for example, Mm -hmm. they're saying, hey, wait a minute, Uh, this is unsustainable. And and I want to mention that to you because I'm just curious, when you hear about stories like this as an economist, what are your big concerns? What are your fears in particular for people who more or less are locked into what their budgets are previously? I worry about people who are on a fixed income, who don't have the luxury of being able to move somewhere new that might be more affordable, people who maybe are on disability and they have a lot of resources wherever they live right now that they can't just move away from. Those are the people I worry about the most. Uh, The people who I'm not so worried about are people who have, you know, these high paying remote jobs and can just pick up and move wherever they want. Even if like the rent in San Francisco goes up, they can go to Sacramento, they can go to Las Vegas, they can go to Austin or somewhere else. Um, So if you're adaptable, this isn't so bad, but if you don't have the ability to move or adapt, it can really hit you hard and just make you poorer. Something else I think people are probably talking about is the increase a number of eviction moratoriums that are ending. I remember that was a big deal during the pandemic. Uh, How does that factor into this story? Well, during the pandemic, the rental market was kind of in a standstill with the eviction moratorium and also landlords often getting mortgage forbearance. There wasn't a whole lot of people moving because of fear of the virus itself. So there just wasn't a lot of activity in the rental market. And part of why rents are going up so much now is because they weren't going up during the pandemic, especially places like New York. Like New York, everyone left during the pandemic, and then they all came back at once. And that's why there's this big increase right now. Whereas in a place like Austin, they've seen rents go up every year, and the pandemic didn't slow them down one bit. 
But I think there's a second part to this story, too, and I want to switch gears if you will allow me. We can talk about the renting impact, but this also can impact home ownership in particular when you consider, listen, if I'm paying $400 more per rent uh, per month, for example, I'm far less likely to be able to save enough money to get out there and buy my own place. Does that seem to ring true? Absolutely. I think that a lot of people have seen their ability to become a homeowner slip away from them. Like the goalpost keeps moving further out as home prices go up, as mortgage rates go up and then rents go up. So you can't save as much. Uh, It's becoming increasingly hard to become a homeowner. Again, the only people who are figuring out a way to break into home ownership right now are people who are leaving an expensive area, taking their income with them and moving to a more affordable area. But then that has knock on effects to that affordable area. It doesn't stay so affordable for very long. Yeah, that can change really quickly. As uh, someone who grew up in Denver, for example, I have family out there, and they'll tell you five years ago you could get a place for, I don't know, $300,000 in a reasonably decent neighborhood. Now uh, that same house is going to cost you six hundred and fifty dollars or $700,000. And as people migrate, say, from places like California uh, to Texas, to Colorado, to Arizona, uh, the prices keep going up and up and up for the folks who are already living there. Let me drill down just a bit, if I can, while we have you, Daryl, on the idea of millennials. Uh, I think that's a massive marketplace. Uh, they have this idea. They watch HGTV, and, and they want to get out there, and they want to buy their first home. I'm wondering how this will impact them in particular. Well, millennials, we've been given kind of the short straw in a lot of ways. Uh, Millennials graduated into the job market during a recession. Uh, Now many of them are just getting into a financially stable place. Millennials have delayed getting married, delayed having children, delayed buying homes. But now we're seeing uh, an increase in the number of millennials who are out there trying to be first-time home buyers. But the market is not easy for them. We did not build enough homes to meet the demand of this generation. So they're all just kind of fighting it out and competing against one another to get that starter home. And even though the market is softening now with higher mortgage rates, I expect that starter home market to remain very tight because of so many people who are still trying to break into the market. Yeah, especially when you consider, like you say, if you're a millennial and you're recently married and you're thinking, okay, now's our shot, well, interest rates have pretty much doubled uh, since just a few years ago. And so now that obviously impacts the amount uh, they would be able to borrow to make a home purchase. Um, You Mm -hmm. know, there's another element to this, too. There are markets, say, like California, for example, highest rent prices in years, still overheated home prices. What is the overall economic forecast for housing in general? I think people wonder, uh, and we can broaden it out from California, people wonder what's going to happen to housing starts? What's going to happen to home ownership trends over the, say, next year or so? What do you think? Well, in California in particular, I'm encouraged because they've relaxed a lot of their zoning laws um, and they're trying to make it easier for, for to densify, to build more housing, especially in those coastal cities that have so much demand. It's probably not going to make California more affordable than it is right now, but it will certainly help to keep those rising costs in check. They won't go up as quickly as long as California allows more housing to be built. So I I hope that other places around the country kind of see what happened in California, how they let that problem get out of control for way too many years and how how costly it is for them to fix it now. And I hope cities um, just plan for their growth. Austin, for example, is experiencing a lot of growth. I know there's a lot of land in Austin, so I hope that they're able to plan their transit and their housing so they can accommodate all that growth without seeing prices continue to skyrocket. 
Yeah, you make a great point. If you've ever been to the state of Texas, you know plenty of space out there, and you can get, or at least you used to be able to get a reasonably priced uh, home somewhere in the suburbs in a, maybe a 35-, 40-minute commute. Well, now with the added density and so many more housing units and so many more people, uh, that commute now becomes an hour and 30 minutes. And so it's going to be difficult. Uh, and not just in Austin, by the way. That's everywhere that you're having these uh-huh. hot marketplaces. I mentioned Nashville earlier, which is another one of those destination spots for people from the Northeast. Hey, we're going to go south. We're going to Charlotte, North Carolina. We're going to Nashville. We're going to go down to Florida and try to set up shop. And in the meantime, for all the people that are in those spots, you guessed it, the rates keep going up and up and up. Lastly, I, I want to try to get sort of some solutions. I think often people will listen to a conversation and they say, wow, what am I going to do? Even if it doesn't impact them, say, per se, uh, Daryl, it may impact a loved one. As you mentioned, it may impact a parent who's deciding to downsize. It may impact uh, millennials or people who are fresh out of college and they're just trying to make their way. If there are two nuggets uh, that you can offer people that you talk about, maybe these solutions would help ease the pain, if you will. What might they be? You mentioned one, obviously, more building, uh, more permitting, uh, more dense building. That may be one answer. What do you think? Yes, definitely. Uh, just increasing the supply of housing is is going to be crucial to keeping costs down. It's going to look a little bit different in different parts of the country, like a place like Los Angeles. I think they really need to focus on converting single family homes into multifamily homes and making sure the zoning allows that. But also just construction costs are going way up. So yeah. another approach would be to focus on what the builders need and they are having problems with sourcing labor with getting materials so there may be some policy changes there maybe on the immigration front or on our trade policy on our tariffs that can make it uh, less expensive for builders to build so one part is getting the land and getting it zoned correctly and the other part is supporting the building that will happen on that land are we looking at a rough year for housing say over the next 12 months or hit and miss the housing market i think is going to is going to be fine. I mean, I, like right now with higher mortgage rates, things are slowing down, but sales are still happening. If you're trying to sell a home, I don't think you should worry because homes are still getting viewed. They're still getting offers. This is not as competitive as it was earlier in the year. And then if you're buying, it's not all that easier either, just because mortgage rates are much higher and prices still remain high. So the housing market isn't in danger of collapsing right now. People have plenty of equity in their homes. Homeowners were able to lock in record loan mortgage rates. I think what happens with housing, if we actually do see prices decline, really hinges on whether or not we enter into a recession in the next year. And that's just what I'm paying attention to right now. What happens in the economy? Is the Fed going to be able to get inflation under control without having to take severe and drastic measures? Or, you know, has the Fed already done a lot of the work and it's just going to be inflation going down naturally from here on out? I don't think anyone knows the answer to that. So that's what I'm going to be paying attention to. Yeah, we'll all be watching that very carefully, especially those who are thinking about or are currently in the housing market. Even if you're just looking to get out there and rent, uh, you do want to pay attention to what happens in that end. Thank you so much, Daryl Fairweather, the chief economist over at Redfin. Thank you. Next week, we'll hear more from the Supreme Court. Anticipated rulings include one on religious liberty, one on immigration and the Remain in Mexico program, as well as one from states that challenged whether or not the EPA can restrict greenhouse gas emissions. We'll also follow Congress closely as they wrap up their week before the July 4th recess. 
Until then, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay in touch with those you care about. For our entire team here at Fox News Radio, thank you for listening. I'm Jessica Rosenthal from Washington. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.